And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke chapter 23. I love my friend Jim Thomaser. He and his wife Stacy are dear to the early family. Jim grew up here in the Pacific Northwest. They moved to Whidbey Island two years ago. They live in a beautiful little neighborhood not too far from the ferry. In the summertime, the blackberries are everywhere, of course, and their flowers and tomato plants are in bloom, though this year wasn't the best for most of us when it comes to tomatoes. It's so nice to walk around the corner to Miss Elizabeth's home, pick apples, and trot down to the most wonderful little lake. Jim and I helped her pick some heavy pottery up one afternoon and move it around on her back deck. She thanked us like we were true Catholic saints. Anyway, Jim has a boat and a tube to tow behind it. and The lake we play on there is special. The water's warm to swim in. The trees are as tall as ever. The blue sky just goes on and on with a puffy white cloud here and there. It's summertime. It feels as though they live in another world. And, you know, in a way they do. Last Friday morning, Jim caught the 9 a.m. ferry to Seattle. We went to Cafe Fiore there in Sunset Hill. Jim got his 12-ounce Americano, and I got a London Fog. We hiked down to Golden Gardens. You know, he's lived here his whole life, has never actually been to Golden Gardens nor Mount Rainier. (laughs) Can you believe that? We had a laugh over the fact that sometimes you can live close to things that everyone else in the world knows about, but not actually ever go see those things for ourselves. We'll get around to it sometime, you know? When I lived in London, I'd ask my classmates whether or not they'd been down to Bath or to Stonehenge or up to Cambridge or over to Oxford. And so often my friends said, no, of course not. We can do that any day. Hopefully time doesn't run out, you know? So Jim and I sat on a dock and I pointed out the dock next to us. Me and Chad jumped off that dock one summer. In fact, Chad and I just jumped off another dock the other day on his birthday. (laughs) We had a good laugh at that, too. So there we sat, staring out at the slate-blue water, slapped up against the gray sky. The orcas were out there splashing around between two sailboats. The train went by, and we enjoyed the smells of the shipyard and just being together. We talked about all the kinds of things that anyone talks about with their friend and pastor. The ups and downs, the unknowns, the questions. And we talked about grief and joy, the unpredictable nature of life, and God's surprising faithfulness through it all. Afterwards, we made the long hike back up to Sunset Hill climbing a million steps and sat down on another bench. 
two old men huffing and puffing, checking our smartwatches. <laughs> kind of proud of ourselves. Uh, kind of sad that we get winded so easily. Jim noticed my striped socks. They were pink and brown and yellow. <laughs> he said, boy, I like those socks. I said, oh, let me tell you about the wonderful person that gave me these socks. The great Miss Sharon Sellers gave me these. I told him about her and her precious husband, Walt, who I call my Papa Walt. They visited our church that I was in the midst of planting in a bar in Noonan, Georgia, years and years ago. Little did I know that I was meeting two people that would become family to me. She is absolutely brilliant. She's easily the most well-read person I've ever met in my life. And it's just fascinating to talk to her and listen to what she's gleaned over her years as a professor and a student of literature. And she can pull from philosophy or theology or history in ways that I've never heard anybody do before. So she can transition from talking about a recent Time article to T.S. Eliot to quoting Moby Dick. And so talking to her is one of the great joys of my life. And I told Jim, I said, you know, the thing I love the most about her is how she asks questions. Jim stopped me right there and said, wait, the thing you like most about her is how she asks questions? That's really special. I said, oh yes, I so want you and Stacy to meet her. The thing she does best is ask good questions, such as the gift of a true teacher. Teachers not only instruct from the outside, they know how to ask good questions and force the listener to reach inside and pull out some things. That's what she does. She is a teacher to the bone. I've learned so much from her. And if there's one thing I can boil it down to, it's this. That it's not so much the answers we give, but the questions that we ask that determine the quality of our relationships. She's good at asking questions and therefore she's deeply loved by so many. When it comes to Jesus himself, consider the questions he was asked. Why do you speak in parables? <laughs> Can a man enter his mother's womb and be born a second time? Shall we strike down the Samaritans? Who sinned? This man? or his parents. When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming? Of all the questions that Jesus was asked, the unnamed thief asked the best one. Church tradition tells us that the man's name was Dismas, which means sunset. How appropriate. I don't really know if that was actually his name or not, I don't know that it matters all that much to anyone other than his mother, really. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. It was as much of an instruction as it was a question. A beggar in the last hour asking for pity. 
Perhaps it is the question that sums up all the other longings and questions that people have brought to Jesus' ears for the last 2,000 years. There he was, all strung up there, dying in the merciless sun, the way rebels and riffraff ought to die, with nothing left but a heart purified by pain. And watching how Jesus was dying, he belted out the most pure question, the question beyond all questions, the last question. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? This last request of Jesus was more than a Hail Mary thrown by Russell Wilson down at CenturyLink. This final question is the one we all ask of Jesus when the sun has gone down in our own lives. After fighting with a spouse or a friend, after blowing it at work or doing something impulsive or giving in to temptation, most assuredly on our deathbeds, that's the thing we ask of Jesus once more. Would you remember me? And to put yourself there on Skull Hill, looking up at this utterly helpless situation, what on earth would you make of it had you actually heard this man's request to be remembered? Surely it would have sounded utterly absurd. Who of the three hanging there appears as though he's actually bound for heavenly glory. I can think of plenty others, and when they die, we assume they're headed straight for the pearly gates and crystal seas and golden streets and all the rest. Mother Teresa, a faithful priest, a sacrificial mother, fathers who teach Sunday school, courageous missionaries, philanthropists, doctors laboring in developing countries, those people. But that one up there, in the middle, the one all bleary-eyed and battle-born, torn from limb to limb, with a voice that's gone hoarse from all the writhing and agony, what on earth could he possibly offer anyone? What does he have? His hands are pierced. He could no longer hold someone in his arms. His feet were nailed to the wood. He could no longer walk across the room and say hello. His clothing belonged to the winning gambler at the base of the cross. There was absolutely nothing left that I could see. It appeared to be completely over. However, there's a catch. The thief knew something. Thieves know where to look for valuables. They understand that you really have to seek out a hidden treasure. They know that the jewels are in a big black locked safe. They know that the cash is two stories underground at the bank. They know where things of worth are stored. So, even from his cross, he had scoped out the situation. He had cased the joint. And in the right moment, he made his less than sinister move. He asked for the only thing Jesus had left. He asked for his memory. He asked to be remembered. Will you remember me? Surely some scoffed at the pitiful request. But was it all that pitiful of an ask? If you've ever been truly remembered by someone else, then you know that the man was asking for the moon. Think of the people throughout your life 
who cared enough to pick up the phone, come by, or send you a letter in the post. The people you moved away from are those who moved away from you that still remember you. Yes, they would be right to laugh were Jesus not Jesus. It would be right to laugh if he didn't possess the keys to the kingdom of God. It would be right to laugh if he really were some nonsensical, charismatic, wisdom-sage pseudo-rabbi from a backwater town. But as we know, he's God's son. And in his darkest moment, as the sun is blotted out in midday, he is somehow still running the whole miserable show Truly, right then and there, at his darkest, our darkest, the world's darkest moment, all was still working according to plan. I lay down my life, and I will take it up again. Or to Pilate, he said, You have no power over me. The only power you have is that which my father gave you. Oh yes, it would have been right to laugh at Dismas and Jesus, were Jesus truly just another man? So after giving all that he had, from time, attention, food, healing, clothing, even the blood in his veins and skin off his own back, Jesus still had one thing left to give. He would give his thoughts away to a dying stranger. I recall on one occasion years and years ago, our beloved Brennan Manning commented on Shel Silverstein's giving tree. He said it was the best modern parable he had ever heard in reference to Jesus's self-emptying love. Do you recall the story of the apple tree who lived right alongside a little boy who grew up to become an old man? Oh, how she loved him. The little boy would climb up in her branches and swing and eat apples and be happy. They'd lie in the shade. One day, the boy said, tree, I love thee. As the boy grew up, the tree gave all that she could. He became too old to climb and wanted money. So she gave him her apples to sell in the city and make money. Later, he needed a house. So she gave him all her branches to build a house. After that, he wanted to sail away from the world in a boat. So she gave him her trunk to build a boat. At the end of the boy's life as an old man, he walked out to her, the old stump, and she was sad that she had nothing left to give him. And then it dawned on her, well, an old stump is good for resting. Come sit down, boy, rest a while. And the boy sat down and the tree was happy. Do you recall Jesus' command to the disciples the night before he would end up on the cross? He broke bread, poured wine, and said what? Do this in remembrance of me. The Christian faith isn't merely a thinking faith in the sense of theology, reason, rationale, apologetics, and all the rest, though all of those things are very important. The Christian faith isn't solely a mental, cognitive exercise of the brain. It's an exercise of the heart, the willingness and pleasure derived from remembering someone else. 
When it comes to the Eucharist, Holy Communion, the table, or whatever you call it, believers have debated as to whether or not Jesus is physically present or absent or somewhere else in between since the beginning. But let's not overlook the simple fact that the meal is commanded to be taken not merely with the intention of straining out just how close Jesus is in physical proximity to the elements, but rather just how close your mind is in remembering the one who made the elements sacred to begin with. Jesus wants to be remembered as much as we want him to remember us in his kingly power when he comes at the right hand of the Almighty.